This is The Long Cut, a podcast by Booster Stage. I'm your host, Ryan, and I'm on a journey to look behind the curtain of the overnight success. On this show, we talk with founders, business owners, entrepreneurs, and innovators who have successfully launched, built, grown, and sometimes exited SaaS businesses that solved a problem. Ready? Let's get started. Welcome to episode five of The Long Cut. Today we're talking about validation. How do you know if an idea is worth pursuing? This is something I talk about a lot. I create software for a living, and it bothers me when I see people falling into the trap of investing a ton of money and and time and effort into building a product that hasn't been validated yet. And so one of the things I try to do as part of my software development process is to help my customers and prospective customers and even people that I don't work with to validate the idea that they have, to make sure that they have a business that is going to prosper and that they have a product that is going to sell and that they can create a customer. It's not always the easiest thing to do, and sometimes our emotional attachment to our idea or the product that we want to build can get in the way of truly validating whether or not our business idea or product is going to thrive. The fact is that there isn't only one way to validate a product. In fact, there is an unlimited number of ways to validate a product, but it really all comes down to whether or not you can create a customer, whether you can convince somebody or whether somebody needs your product or the solution to your problem badly enough to pay you for it. The trouble comes up when someone wants to build an MVP too early in the process. Now, most of you probably know what an MVP is, but in case you don't, it stands for Minimum Viable Product. It also stands for Most Valuable Player, but we're talking about products here. So Minimum Viable Product. Now, basically, that means that this is the smallest part or the smallest piece, the smallest version of your product that actually does the thing that you propose it's going to do and is going to be valuable enough for somebody to pay for. So it's literally the least you can do to get a customer. Unfortunately, creating software or any product isn't a cheap process. And so there's almost always some investment involved, whether it's time or money, which means that there's risk involved. And anytime there's risk involved, you could lose. You could make a bad bet. You may not be able to find a customer for your product. There's a lot of things that can go wrong. On the other hand, there's promise of a reward. You might find a customer and you might be able to build a company around it. You might do really well. That's the reward that we're looking for. Balancing that risk and reward is the challenge of every early stage startup entrepreneur. One of the ways we can mitigate this risk is by not actually building anything. And I know you're all going, what? I thought we had to have an MVP in order to get funding or in order to get customers. Well, yes, but we need to decide what that minimum is in minimum viable product. A lot of times when a founder is talking about their MVP, their minimum viable product, they're actually describing a product that's pretty far along in its development. Now, you can launch with a fully developed product or with a product, a software product that is actually, that actually does, has some features and does some things, but that's very expensive. Now, there's nothing wrong with doing that if you have the resources, but I recommend taking a step back and validating that you're on the right path before you actually start building any software. There are a ton of different ways that you could do this, and depending on the kind of product that you're going to be developing, you could choose 
from a number of different models for validating a product before you actually start building anything. If you're curious about that, let me know because I would like to do an episode on that. In the meantime, I have a PDF on my website that lists out about a dozen different models for validating a product that don't involve building software. You can find that on boosterstage.net slash every dash MVP dash ever. I'll put a link to that in the show notes or email me at ryan at thelongcut.fm and I'll send you a copy. Somebody who's done a lot of work with early stage startups is Ada Ryland. Ada is a startup strategy consultant based in Austin, Texas, where I live. She's got a passion for early stage startups and helping them overcome that uncertainty that every early stage startup faces at the very beginning. I wanted to have Ada on the program because she has some amazing insight into how a startup founder can go about validating a project or a product before they start investing in it. It's an approach I think a lot of people understand intuitively, but I don't see a lot of startups going through this before they start investing in their product. And I think that it's an important step that shouldn't be skipped. Your startup's success or failure could be predicated on what happens and the decisions that are made at these early stages. I caught up with Ada to ask her how she helps startup founders go through this process of validation. Ada, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Was there a moment when you realized, ooh, I've got something that other startups or that startup founders really need to know? I eventually got to the part where I had something that I believed other startup founders needed to know. But originally, I just loved the space. I love the space of thinking about something new and trying to create the future, you know, like coming up with something that has never been done and that extreme uncertainty of it. And what would make the difference to have it become real? That's the part where I've always loved. I love and always love. And I love startup founders because that's where they live. They live in that extreme uncertainty and they're trying to create something that doesn't exist. That's great. I love that, well, the way you describe that, you know, because that's what we are trying to do as startup founders. We're trying to create something new, creating the future and making something that's in our head into a real thing. That's not something that every, that's for everybody, but for those people that it is for, it's almost like it's built in. You can't really get away from it. You're just always thinking about how you can change reality <laughs> to fit what you, the way you think it ought to be. Yeah. And well, I started uh, as an engineer. I thought I was going to be an inventor. And so I studied engineering and engineering is all about de-risking things. It's all about how do you build something. When I moved from engineering into consulting, I remember someone said to me once, why would you stop being an engineer? Why would you give that up? <laughs> and I said to them, I don't think you can stop being an engineer. Um, I think it just always is with you. And where I am now with this, with consulting, I, I it's totally in engineering brought to uh, the early stage of startups. Well, that's what you're doing, isn't it? You're de-risking the startup process. Exactly. And we use tools and frameworks. Uh, we use a repeatable methodology and um, we try to get at reality, which is what science always is trying to do was originally what science is supposed to do and what it's still doing. So it's the use of science and tools to de-risk and to create something that's going to change the future. So these entrepreneurs, are, they're out there, they're thinking of these ideas. And when somebody comes to you with an idea or a business that they are thinking about doing or building, what do you tell them? What's the most important thing that you tell them to think about before they start? There's several things to consider. 
um, and they all go together all at once. But fundamentally, the most important thing is what you want to cause. So what you want to cause in the world, what interests you most that you would work for free to do that, that you would really love for something to happen, because there's a lot of juice and energy there that you can draw from as you go through your journey, because it's quite a journey. And so you might as well do something you love, because, you know, if it's going to be that hard, you might as well do something that's worth it. So do you love it? And then the second thing is, does it matter to anyone else? You got to think about what's the what other people value, and you you've got to play in that space. So, does it matter to anyone else? But I thought, you know, if we just built something that was awesome, people would come and use it. Well, yeah, that would be great if you could guarantee it was awesome. Definition of awesome, though, always comes from the customer side. The customer makes that determination. That's their word, what they get to say. Um, and that's what you're shooting for. So just because you think it's awesome doesn't mean it's awesome. <laughs> I have a blog post about that on my blog and boosterstage.net. If you search for, uh, I think, Field of Dreams. If, do you remember that movie with Kevin oh, Costner yeah. where he built that baseball field out in the middle of his cornfield in Nebraska or Iowa? I forgot where they were. But there was this voice of James, uh, James Earl Jones in the background he kept saying, if you build it, they will come. And I think that's an attitude that a lot of entrepreneurs have, you know, that if you build it, people will come. If you build something awesome enough, then you'll find users, you'll find customers. But in reality, that's almost never the case, is it? It's a tough one because sometimes you just build, that's what art is when you build something awesome. But um, a lot of artists uh, go <laughs> go a long time without hitting it. Um, you know, novelists can go their entire career without hitting it, and then after they die, it works. Um, so you can create something awesome, whether or not it's going to work in the short term. And so if you're trying to make money and have it happen in the next year or two, it's useful to have it be hot <laughs> for others so that they'll pay you in the short term. So like you said, you're creating something, but not just for, for the sake of creating it. You're also creating it for someone else. So who that other person is, who that someone else is, that's who your customer is. And you have to create a customer also. Well, you know, there's one thing that I go into um, when I teach class, um, and that is there is absolutely, well, what the question is, what are you trying to do for yourself? What's your minimum success criteria that would be? enough like if you got to a certain point that it would make you happy you would open the champagne you know the happy dance or whatever if you got to some level that is really your minimum success criteria and it's useful to know what that is because sometimes it can be really low like having a hobby that pays for itself is a fantastic thing you know nothing wrong with that and if that's what you're doing and you're trying to create something you want some people to play with you and that is awesome for you, then that's, there's no judgment here. That's you. It's your life. Does that work? Then do that. Or if you're making a, a small business, you know, it's you and you're in a small team and it's might never scale. It's not going global, but it's going to totally pay your bills and you're going to make, you know, good money or maybe even a lot of money. You can make a lot of money with a small business, but it's never going to scale. It's not going to be a startup. VCs are not going to invest in it. But that's what you're really doing. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> I have a small business. And then sometimes people just have to do something 
that totally scales, that goes completely, you know, national or global and that, and there won't be happy unless that they do that. And then you got to know it. If that's what you're doing, then you really got to know what you're doing. So what does that success look like? That's, that's an important question. I wonder if a lot of people ask that before they start. I find that it's generally in the background and they think it's obvious. Like, of course I'm doing a $10 million thing. Of course I'm just trying to pay my bills. So it's, it's something that people don't really pull up and make it very clear to themselves. And it particularly with their, if you have a co-founder, this would be a really good conversation to have. Oh yeah, I imagine so. Because if you both have a different idea of what success looks like, it might work out at least at, at the first, but it's going to come up at some point. It's going to come up at some point, and it's so much easier to have those hard conversations before there's money actually involved. People get crazy when there's money there. <laughs> yeah, money changes the conversation a lot. Well, t- so take us through your process. Like, how does the process work when you're going to help a, a young entrepreneur or a new entrepreneur? who has a business idea and they want to know how to de-risk it? Normally, um, the first thing I do is get oriented uh, because particularly in the startup rules, there's a lot of words that people use that they use differently and we actually don't call that out. So the first thing I do is get oriented on what we're talking about. Uh, So what's starting with a hockey stick curve and defining the growth stage and the medium, the middle stage, which is called product market fit, and then the first stage, which is called problem solution fit. And then we identify what goes on in those stages and what's the tipping point between them so that the person self-selects and determines what stage they're in. And then we can start talking about, well, in that stage, what are the activities and where are they and, and that kind of thing. So someone new usually is in the very first stage. And for me, how I know that is, is it's about their offer. So if they have an offer that doesn't convert yet, only converts just, you know, maybe they have a couple customers, but not like a lot of customers, then they're in the first stage. And the organizing principle there is all about the offer and getting the offer to work. I imagine everybody listening to this podcast has probably heard the term product market fit, but you just said problem solution fit. And that's the first stage that you're just, that you're talking about. So what does that even mean, problem-solution fit, and how do we find that? We should start with product-market fit because that's the one most people have heard about. And for me, when I define that one is when the market is uh, pulling, it's like an energetic where they're pulling for your product or your service. So this looks like people are calling you, you're not calling them. There's a pull and a demand. Um, that's where your value over your price is so great. The value is so great that there's a tipping point that happens. That's how I define that product market fit. So before that, though, you have to get the problem solution fit. And in that stage, the big questions are, do you have a big enough problem? The problem you're solving, is it big enough to create a business around? And then separately, a total separate conversation is, does your solution fit it? And actually, the only people that can tell you if your solution fits that problem are your customers. And the only way you know that is if they're taking you up on the offer. It sounds like kind of a catch-22 situation then because you don't have a product yet, really, because you haven't started. Or if you do have a product, it's probably infantile and it's not really complete. 
but in order to get your product, you got to get customers. But in order to get your customers, you got to get your product. A lot of people think that you start with a minimum viable product. So you just make something at, that's minimum and see if anyone wants it. I have a feeling that's going to be a bite right. coming. <laughs> Some, there are cases where that's the only way you can do it. But in a large number of cases, uh, what you can do is talk about your solution, is demo your solution, is mock up your idea in some way. And that would be a fundamental part of your offer. And if nobody takes you up on that, then you want to really look at it. A lot of startup founders want to start with that MVP. And it's easy to make an MVP because you just learn how to program Ruby on Rails or Angular or whatever, and you just go out and code something. But um, that oftentimes ends up being kind of a wasted effort, or it's a lot of effort for what it is. And you're probably going to end up back at the drawing board anyway, possibly investing more time and more money if you've spent money on it. So demoing a solution and talking about your solution that sounds hard if you don't have something already built. So what do you do in that case? So the fidelity of the demo, so what, how deep your demo needs to be and what you should do in your demo depends greatly on who your customer is and what they need. What is it that they need to see so that they understand? And the, the thing that I think most people miss about demos is that they seem to think that it's about showing how your thing works. This is what it looks like. This is how it works. This is how easy it is. And we, so we think that that's what we do with demos is to show how. But what's important is the fundamental reason you're doing a demo is not the how, but it's for them to imagine getting their success criteria. It's about them seeing daylight to having what they really want. And then what they then do is quickly jump to what they could have after that. Like, if I could have that, then that means I'd be freed up to do all these other things. So what happens if you actually are doing a demo right, the person is not with you anymore. They're off in their head imagining, you know, like they're laying on the beach with an umbrella drink if you do the demo right. So you're pitching success to them. So you, we've, gone from, we've gone from looking at what does success look like for me to thinking about what does success look like for my customers. And if you can solve a problem that your customers have, then you might have a business there. Oh, and if you can't, then you don't have a business. That's actually uh, a, the quick way to get to an answer. Kind of like a litmus test almost. So um, that's really interesting because what you're, tr what you're really doing is the sales. You're doing sales at that point without selling, of course, but you're trying to get into the customer's head and figure out how, like, what is the, the painkiller or vitamin that I have to sell them? And how can we apply this to some problems that they have? And so probably I would imagine there's a lot of listening that goes on at this point, isn't there? Oh, listening. Yes. Listening is uh, like, like advanced listening is how I would say, <laughs> I would call it. Yeah. Cause you're not just pitching a, a solution. You don't want to go in there with your, you know, UI mockups and say, this is how we're going to solve all your problems. And, and you can order your pina colada up at, at the bar. Instead, what you're really, what you're really doing is you're trying to pull it, pull them into the vision of how you're going to solve their problem. So how do you do that? How do you listen like that? That's the question. <laughs> That's the, how do we listen better? But here's the thing: it's all the the problem with all this talk of early stage startup 
is actually the word problem. The word problem is a thing and it's trying to describe a thing. And it's a, it's a, it's a very finite, very two-dimensional thing that you're going to solve. And you're going to try to make something to match that problem. And that sounds very engineering and very direct and useful. Except what's happening is that it's a person. <laughs> Your customer is a person, which isn't 2D, and they're not a thing. And they actually have quite a lot going on in lots of different domains of their life. In, the, in whatever it is, this problem is, it's not a 2D problem. And so the, one of the ways I try to describe this is like to get at the word problem and how inaccurate or ineffective it is, is, is to think about a car and then to ask yourself, well, what problem does a car solve? So Ryan, what problem does a car solve? What, what, what would you say? Yeah, well, I got to go from point A to point B most of the time. It gets me places. But the thing is, I wouldn't be able to get groceries without it. I wouldn't be able to get to work. Well, I could, but it'd be a long walk. You know, I wouldn't be able to get my kids to school. So having a car has a lot of dimensions to it. Yes. So this is interesting. So in one way, you can go in the direction of what do I get if I have a car? What are the benefits of having a car? So that's awesome. And an analysis you can do. But if we come back to the car and the problem, transportation, you might even you know, getting from A to B, carrying stuff, cargo, you might even say reliable, you might even say comfortable, all these things. But one of the things I would say is it might be true in the first $10,000 of a car is solving that problem, right? Reliable, base, and it's comfortable, and it works, and all that stuff. But have you ever spent more than $10,000 on a car? Yeah, and why would you do that, right? Yeah, so what is that? What is that other part that isn't the problem that you're solving, but there's all this other. So some people spend $20,000 more, $30,000. Some people spend $100,000 more than that. So that, so one of the things I want to suggest if, is if you're just thinking about what problem you're solving, you're leaving a lot of money on the table. So a car, a car goes so far beyond just getting you from point A to point B. It's a status symbol. It's comfortable. It has maybe an MP3 player. <laughs> and so all of these things are not necessarily part of that problem, but they're all parts of car ownership. So I guess what you're saying is there is a lot more to making your customer successful than just solving that problem that you can pick out. Yes. And the closer you can get to articulating what they're really trying to do, the more they'll like you. <laughs> the more they'll like your solution over any other. Now, I didn't make this up. I should say <laughs> we should refer back to uh, the tech, what I would call a technology in this startup. Um, it's a tool or a technology called Job to Be Done. And you can Google that and look up a bunch of stuff. It was uh, pioneered back in the mid 90s with a group of consultants spearheaded by Clayton Christensen from Harvard Business School, but there were other people on the team, Tony Olwick, Mike Raynard, and others. I, I, I have to apologize to the other people who didn't. I think maybe Bob Moeski. And that's where the idea of job to be done came from. Like, what is this? What is the customer hiring this thing to do for them? What's the full job that they're trying to get done? So you kind of end up thinking of your product as being almost like an employee that is going to go and solve it's going to go, they're going to hire your product to do something for them and it's going to do a job for them. And so how are you going to engineer your product to do the best possible job and make them 
the most money or whatever it is that that's going to do. Yeah, and that that original project that came from is called uh, it, it's the milkshake example, and you can look that up. There's a great there's a YouTube video of Clayton Christensen telling the story. But the bottom line is that there were people that were buying milkshakes before 9 a.m. And this is where it came from. Like, why would you do that? <laughs> you know, what is someone doing that? What are they hiring that milkshake for? And it's a great analysis. But then the other thing you need to, that is great to listen to is what are the competitors for the, actually, let me say it better. The competitor to a milkshake is not necessarily another milkshake. So what is the competitor to a milkshake? <laughs> it's what the customer sees as their existing alternatives to solving that job. Interesting. I remember listening to Jason Fried back in the early 2000s talk about Basecamp when they first came out with Basecamp. And one of the things he said was that their main competitors weren't other project management tools, but they were either doing nothing, which if you think about it, that's kind of a weird competitor, doing nothing. But really, doing nothing was a competitor. People were not using Basecamp because they were not using anything. And so they had to compete with that. And their other big competitor was uh, Microsoft Excel. People were just using Microsoft Excel. But it's not a project management tool, but it was, it was their competitor. And so they had to convince people that using Basecamp was going to make them more effective or whatever problem they were solving make them better at project management than just using Microsoft Excel. So it's interesting. I remember that milkshake example, and I don't remember, I don't remember what the punchline was. They stopped them and asked them, why did you buy that milkshake? And they all said, I have a long, boring commute. <laughs> and the milkshake is nice, and it lasts almost the whole way. And I sip on it all the whole drive, and it's nice. So I have to show up at whatever time in the morning and be in good shape, be happy. So by gosh, I'm going to get a milkshake before I go into work. What do you tell people to do when they're at this stage? Is there a process that they can go through or a business plan that you like to use that helps them to answer these questions? There's two different questions in that question because the figuring out the problem solution fit is slightly different from figuring out the business model. Those are actually two different swim lanes that you have to do in the early stage. So which comes first? Well, let's see. What I like to say about the early stage is that it isn't a step-by-step process. There's probably six or eight different key things that you, you have to figure out. And it's a bit like whack-a-mole because... If you change one thing in your business model, that's going to affect who your primary customer is, and then that affects your market model, and that you know, the way you think about the market, and then that affects your fundamental assumptions of how much money you can make. So um, every little bit of thing that you learn ends up rippling through the whole thing and changing. So it's in this constant state of change until you finally hit on something that works and it starts to stabilize. This is why early stage founders are overwhelmed. Um, and if they aren't very clear on the definite areas they need to work, they need to be watching. Um, I've divided it into four different areas uh, to make it easier <laughs> to like get your head around it. Well, the first one, the one, I'll start with the one we all know, and that's the business model. I mean, maybe not all of us know about it, but a lot of people in the startup world know that, that a business model is a way to sketch out your, your business idea and the see what might be weak about it and 
shore that up and work on it and share it with other people and get input until it starts to look like something that might work. So we know that a business model is something that is super useful to do in the early stage. And then there's a couple that you can use for that, either the business model canvas, which is actually a business model, or uh, there's another tool called the Lean Canvas by Ash Moria. And that isn't exactly a business model, but it has a lot of good questions that you absolutely need to answer, actually have to answer before you can do the other one. A model is an idea, right? It's an idea that you have. So the word model, I'm going to use that differently now that I actually, most people don't use it this way, but the other area you need to worry about is customer, right? Your customer, who's your customer? And I think that you need to craft a customer model. You start with an idea of who you think your customer is, and then you do experiments to see if that's true. So some people call this um, an ideal customer profile. Is that sort of the same idea? Yes and no. So sometimes the, uh, so what I'd like to do is get it more like in the world of like job to be done was more useful than the word problem. The customer model has inside it the job to be done of the customer, the world of view of the customer. It might have demographics or personas if those are important, if it matters in your customer model that someone's Asian or they're five foot tall or whatever the things are that you're trying to manage in your, in your profile. It could be part of it, but more importantly is what are they doing? What is the progress they're making or trying to make that they're going to hire something for? So it's more of a, it's an actual model and more complex than just a paragraph or a picture. So, so now we have a business model and we have a customer model. And then I'd like to use that same idea to consider your market. So what you're actually crafting is an idea of a market, a model of a market. And I think it's funny because markets... It's funny, they don't actually exist. There is no market out there as a thing. It's people. <laughs> it's a bunch of individual people. Individual people, yeah. And they behave, they behave sometimes in collective, but most of the time it's individual decisions being made. Right. And we have a pattern or a paradigm that we think they are in the same group or acting the same. And that's a model. So you're actually crafting for yourself a, a guess at your market. What's your total addressable market? What's your serviceable addressable market? And then serviceable market that these are ideas, really. So we've got business model, the customer model, the market model. And there's one, one what's the last area? Yeah, the last one is, is the one that tells you the answers. <laughs> like, is this worth working on? Can I make money? Um, and that's the financial model. So this is usually a bunch of spreadsheets and there's different ways to do it. And there's some pro very proven ways and some great websites that can help you do this. But this is uh, what the financial model is trying to do is collect up all your assumptions from your business model, your customer model, and your market model and put them all together and then try to put money dollars on it and to do the math to say, can I make enough money at, at this? Is this going to work? Now, what I, I notice people tend to do is they jump to the financial model a little too early, like really early. Well, it's kind of tempting, isn't it? I mean, we're 
part of the reason to do this is to make money. So it's, we kind of want to get those stars in our eyes and think about, ooh, what will happen if I have X amount of monthly revenue? Yeah. Should I even do anything on this? Is it going to work at all? So you can do a sketch, like a quick sketch to say, you know, like back of the napkin sort of, is this even worth investigating? But when you when you're actually getting to the part where I'm really making a financial model, you can't really do that unless you had really good assumptions. And in fact, often we talk about those all those Excel spreadsheets as Excel magic. That's something that Ash Maria talked about, is that you can make those spreadsheets say anything you want. And I have actually done that to myself. You know, you can play with it and change your assumptions until the numbers look right. And the, the thing is that you, you can fool yourself. So what you need is your idea of your business model, your customer model, and your market model. And then, um, and then to start to try to see what's the riskiest part of all of this and start to get reality about it. And as you like get into reality about your customer, who really is my primary customer and who, what is that customer segment? And is it really who I think it is? So at some point, these numbers, these, these assumptions, these models all start to come together and then, you know, you know, you're onto something. So what do you tell people who don't have access to an ADA, an ADA Ryland? Where do they start? Like, what kind of research can they do? Are there books that you recommend or blog posts that can get them kind of started on the right path? I recommend um, Ash Moria's books because he is an aggregator of a lot of different concepts and ideas, and they, they come together um, in a way that's very usable. So the book Running Lean, which came out in 2011, but it is a very, uh, it's a very, it's like a recipe book or a workbook on what to be doing in the early stage. Still very good, even though it's been a number of years since it came out. I love that recommendation. And we'll put the links to that in the show notes. I wish we could keep talking to you, Ada, because I have so many more questions for you. So maybe we'll have you on again, because I want to talk about, you know, like different MVP styles and what kind of validation people can do to, you know, once they've got kind of a business model and these, these four different models sketched out, but um, we're going to have to wrap it up. So I want to get people, I want to let people get in touch with you. So how can we find out more about Ada Ryland online? Actually, the, the easiest thing to do is find me on LinkedIn, Ada Ryland. I'm in Austin, Texas, and LinkedIn right now is the best way. Um, my website is adaryland.com, A-D-A-R-Y-L-A-N-D.com. And if somebody does happen to be in Austin, Texas, um, we could work with you, couldn't we? Oh, absolutely. I love talking to early stage founders and just to talk, just to see where are you with it? What have you done? And to help you find what might be the thing you should be looking into most. Like what should you be prioritizing as the most important thing for you to do? One of the things we say here in Austin quite a lot when you're trying to start a business is right action, right time. You know, what is, which would be awesome if you could figure that out. What is the right action to be doing at the right time? And that quote is from Bootstrap Austin from Bajoy Goswami. And what I like to do is help people figure out what is the right action, right time. And the way you do that is figure out what stage are you in? And mainly the way you try to avoid overwhelm is to stop doing things that are not in the stage that you're in. And that'll free up a lot of time. Ada, thanks so much for being on The Long Cut. 
Thank you, Ryan. This has been really fun. Yeah, it has been fun. I always learn something when I talk to Ada. I hope you have somebody in your life who can help you take a step back and take an objective look at your business. If you don't, take a look at mastermindjam.com. It's a great resource for entrepreneurs who need that kind of feedback, and you can get into a mastermind group that will give you just this kind of feedback and help you on your entrepreneurial journey. When you sign up for mastermindjam.com, don't forget to use the promo code THELONGCUT, and you'll get $10 off your first month. I want to give a huge shout-out to folks who have reviewed us on iTunes. It's really awesome, encouraging to me to get these five-star reviews. I mean, I'm floored that people have said such nice things, and we've gotten uh, a bunch of five-star reviews right out of the gate, which is exciting. Here's one that really made me smile. I say it all the time, overnight success makes for a great story, but it's almost never the whole story. We love saying, quote, she came out of nowhere, unquote, because it gives us the illusion that we can make rapid changes that lead to immediate payoff. But the truth is different. It takes work. The long cut dives into that work and paints a realistic picture of what it takes to succeed in the SaaS business. If you're not subscribed now, subscribe immediately. Thanks for that review, Lawford. That literally made my day. I love these reviews. It lets me know that you're listening and that you appreciate this podcast. If you do appreciate this podcast, please go and leave me a review on iTunes. It really, really helps. It lets iTunes know to feature the podcast in the directory. It helps other people to find the podcast. And so the more reviews we get, the more people will find us. So thanks for all the people who have reviewed us. And thanks in advance for going up and reviewing us now. Thanks especially to Ada Ryland for coming on. That was a great interview, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did talking to her. You've been listening to The Long Cut, a podcast by Booster Stage. Music by The Long Cut. Used with permission. Check them out at thelongcut.com. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Join me next week for another conversation where we take a dive into the steps that it took to build an overnight success. Until then, be sure to visit thelongcut.fm and submit your questions. As always, I invite you to get in touch with me so I can help you on your own business journey. I promise I respond to every message I get. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.